Hey everyone, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this podcast as a free and independent educational resource, you can support the show by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash words for granted. You can also make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash words for granted. Thanks to Justin and Katie for their recent contributions. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you'll notice that Words for Granted has new cover art and a revamped version of the theme song. And most exciting of all, and perhaps you don't know this, a new website. I encourage all of you to head over to wordsforgranted.com to check it out. It not only looks great and has a superior structural design to the old one, but there's also a new tab, which is the Words for Granted blog. At least once a month, I'll be publishing articles on etymology, linguistics, history, etc. It'll be a bit of a grab bag, but if you like the podcast, you'll definitely like the kind of stuff I'll be publishing there. The first article covers the etymology of cockpit. Shout out to Michael Tingley for helping me put that one together. To make it easy for you to keep up with the new articles, I'll be sending out a monthly newsletter that features these blog articles, in addition to book recommendations, updates around virtual events like the Latin 101 course with Rebecca Deitch, and a recap of the month's best tweets. As of today, the Words for Granted Twitter account will be tweeting word-of-the-day-style etymologies. So, you can also follow the show there, if you don't already. My hope with all of this is to elevate Words for Granted to more than just a podcast. I really want it to be an all-in-one resource where you can reliably find some of the best etymological and linguistic content on the internet. So, again, check out the site and hop on that mailing list. I'd really appreciate it. Okay, with that spiel, let's get on to part three in our series on the lost letters of the English alphabet. In the previous episode in this series, we looked at the rise and fall of the lost letters eth and thorn, both of which were used to represent the sounds that are today represented in English by the digraph th. Eth was a modified version of the letter d, while thorn was a rune borrowed from the futhork. To recap, a rune is any letter native to a runic alphabet, and the runic alphabets were a set of related writing systems shared and developed by ancient Germanic tribes. The Futhork was the name of the specific runic alphabet used by the Anglo-Saxons before they adopted the Latin alphabet to write Old English. For a lot more detail on runes and the Anglo-Saxons' adoption of the Latin alphabet, I suggest listening to the prior two episodes in this series if you haven't already. The reason I'm starting off today's episode with this brief recap is because the first lost letter we'll be looking at, win, was also originally a rune, and like thorn, it was borrowed into the Old English Latin alphabet from the Futhork. Win was the eighth rune in the Futhork, and it represented the W sound, which of course is today represented in English by the letter W. In its original runic form, Win looked like a capital letter P, but instead of having a rightward-facing loop attached to the top half of a perpendicular line, Win had a rightward-facing triangle attached to the top half of a perpendicular line. When Win was borrowed into the Latin Anglo-Saxon alphabet, 
Scribes changed that triangle into a loop in order to give the letter a more Latinate look, but in order to avoid confusion with the similar-looking letter P, the endpoint of the lower half of Wynn's loop was moved farther down the perpendicular line, and this lower half of the loop was given a slight taper. If you can, I suggest doing a quick Google image search of the letter Wynn, that's W-Y-N-N, in order to give yourself a better visual idea of what we're discussing here. Describing the shapes of lost letters in audio format is not exactly ideal. Anyway, why did the Anglo-Saxons have to borrow the rune win into the Latin alphabet in the first place? Recall from the last episode that the letters thorn and ev were introduced into the Anglo-Saxon Latin alphabet because Latin lacked the sounds th and v and thus it also lacked the letters to represent them. So, was the impetus behind the borrowing of win similar? Did Latin lack the W sound and the letter to represent it? No and yes, by which I mean Latin did not lack the W sound, but it lacked the letter W, because the letter W wasn't invented yet. In order to understand why the Anglo-Saxons borrowed the rune win from the Futhork in order to represent the modern English W sound, we first need to understand a bit about the history of W itself, which is to say that we first need to understand the histories of the letters U and V. This sounds like I'm setting us up for a digression, like I sometimes do, but the intertwined histories of U, V, and W in English are like the prologue and epilogue to the story of Win. Of U, V, and W, V is the oldest. However, that's somewhat of a misleading statement, because in classical Latin, the letter we call V was not used to represent the V sound, but the U and W sounds, the sounds we respectively associate with the letters U and W. I use the phrase, the letter we call V, because in Latin, the letter was known as U, which makes sense because the name V implies a V sound, and the V sound wasn't found in classical Latin. The development of the distinct letters U and W in Latin-derived alphabets did not occur until the medieval period. That's a lot of confusing information, so let me repeat the gist of all of that once more. The letter we call V was found in the original Latin alphabet, but it was used to represent the U and W sounds, not the V sound, because the V sound was not part of classical Latin phonology and the letters U and W didn't exist yet. In classical Latin, the letter we call V would have been called U, aka U. For the sake of clarity, I'm going to refer to this V-shaped Latin letter as the original Latin U going forward. We'll talk more about the more familiar, curvy letter U in a bit. As different vulgar Latin dialects emerged throughout the Roman Empire, beginning in roughly the 1st century BCE, the consonantal pronunciation of the original Latin U began to shift away from the W sound and toward the V sound that we today associate with V. In some regions, particularly in Spain, when occurring between vowels, the pronunciation of the original Latin U shifted to a sound somewhere in between the V and B sounds. Something like V 
which is a feature that still persists in some dialects of Spanish to the present day. Latin scribes during this period of late antiquity were aware of the fragmenting pronunciation of their language, and in order to represent the original consonantal sound of the original Latin U, in other words, the W sound, they developed a digraph of two U's side by side. This was, as you can guess, the precursor to the W as a letter unto itself. It also explains why W is called W even though it looks like a double V, because V was originally called U. The curvy letter we call U started off as a medieval scribal variation of the original Latin U, which to us looks like a V, and over time, the modern letter U came to be used exclusively as a vowel, while the original V-shaped Latin U came to be used exclusively as a consonant. Okay, hopefully your head is still on straight, and assuming it is, let's bring things back to the Anglo-Saxons. By the time the Anglo-Saxons adopted the Latin alphabet, this convention of using two U's back-to-back as a way of representing the W sound had been established. In the earliest Anglo-Saxon manuscripts written in the Latin script, the native Old English W sound was represented by two U's. Sometimes it was represented with the older convention of just one U. Because the original Latin U did double duty as a vowel and a consonant with two different sounds, and the W sound was so ubiquitous in Old English, early Anglo-Saxon scribes thought it would be a good idea to simplify things by incorporating the rune win into their alphabet as an additional letter. And so, after a long-winded and complicated explanation, that is why win was borrowed into the Anglo-Saxon alphabet. After it was borrowed into the Anglo-Saxon alphabet in the early 8th century CE, win remained widely in use in English writing until the early 12th century, at which point it began to decline. By the 14th century, it had disappeared altogether. As history of English buffs well know, the turn of the 12th century was preceded by a significant event that changed the English language forever the Norman-French conquest of England. The Norman conquest resulted in a French-speaking aristocracy in England, which led not only to a French influence on the spoken English language, but also to a French influence on the written English language. One of these French influences on English orthography, or English writing conventions, was the reintroduction of the W digraph as a way of representing the W sound. Earlier, I mentioned that the pronunciation of the W sound in many vulgar Latin dialects had begun to shift to V or V sounds, and these sound shifts were inherited by the Romance languages that descended from these vulgar Latin dialects. However, Norman French was unique among the emergent Romance languages in that it had a strong Germanic influence on its vocabulary and pronunciation. Since the W sound was ubiquitous in Germanic languages, this sound was also ubiquitous in Norman French, in spite of the aforementioned sound changes undergone by the neighboring Romance languages. Due to this fact, the W digraph, literally two U's side by side, was frequently put to use by Norman French scribes as a way of representing the W sound. With the Norman French influence on English after the conquest, this writing convention re-emerged in English. 
This reemergence of the W digraph caused Win to decline for a few reasons. First, English as a written language, in general, declined in the wake of the Norman Conquest. By the time written English began to gain momentum again in the 14th century, English writers were often familiar with and influenced by French orthography, simply due to the pervasiveness of French among the majority of literate people in the country. Second, Wynne did look a whole lot like the letter P, as I've already mentioned, and having two very similar-looking letters in the same alphabet isn't exactly ideal. When looking at Old English manuscripts, I myself have a hard time telling Wynne and P apart. Third, even if Wynne had remained popular in handwritten English in the centuries following the Norman Conquest, the emergence of the printing press would surely have brought the letter to a swift end. Printing presses were imported to England from continental Europe, and continental European alphabets didn't have the letter Wynne. Therefore, Continental printing press makers weren't producing press blocks for the letter win. At first, English printers who needed to represent the w sound would just print two u's next to each other. But eventually, printing press manufacturers began creating a single press block for the w, fusing two u's together to make a single letter. In order to make the letter feel more purely Latinate, the double V shape replaced the double U shape, though in English, the name W remains. Recall from earlier that the letter we call U emerged as a medieval variation of the original Latin U, which was shaped like a V. Unlike ev and thorn, which as we learned in the last episode are still in use today in some modern Germanic alphabets and the international phonetic alphabet, the death of Wynne in the English alphabet really was the death of Wynne altogether. In the 9th century CE, a modified version of Wynne called Vend was borrowed into the Old Norse alphabet to represent the U, V, and W sounds, but after about four centuries, it died out. The letter Wynne doesn't even live on in modern reprintings of Old English works. For ease of reading, Modern editors tend to sub in the anachronistic letter W in place of Win, probably because Win just looks so much like a P. The next lost letter we're going to look at is called Insular G. Insular G isn't a lost letter, strictly speaking. It's an early variant form of the letter G we all know and love, but it's crucial to discuss because it directly led to the evolution of the letter yog, which is indeed a lost letter. Insular G was a lowercase form of the letter G that developed in the insular script of Ireland during the 7th century CE. It didn't have a phonetic value distinct from the classical Latin letter G, just a different shape. Insular G probably has the hardest shape to describe without a visual reference. So again, I recommend doing a Google image search of Insular G if you can. But if you can't, here's my best shot. Imagine the number eight, but with the right half of its top loop missing. Then connect the uppermost point of this half loop with a horizontal line, like the top of an uppercase J, and you have something like Insular G. I should note that the representation of the letter in Unicode, as seen in the title of this episode in your podcast player, doesn't fully capture what the letter originally looked like in handwritten form. As mentioned in previous episodes in this series, 
Irish missionaries were the ones who spread the Latin alphabet to the Anglo-Saxons of 7th century Britain. In addition to the alphabet itself, these Irish missionaries also spread their unique script. In this context, we can understand the word script as a sort of handwritten font. In other words, a consistent style for representing letters within the alphabet. The Irish Insular Script, as it was known, was actually a series of related scripts, but for our purposes we can discuss them broadly as a single entity. Throughout much of the Old English period, Insular G was simply the way that G was written because the Insular Script was the script used to write Old English. A new kind of script developed in France, called the Carolingian Script, spread to the British Isles during the 10th century. This didn't cause the insular script to die out immediately in England, but after the Norman conquest in the following century, the French-derived Carolingian script fully superseded the Irish-derived insular script. Consequently, insular G faded out of existence. Its replacement, the Carolingian G, is the kind of lowercase g that consists of a full ovular loop below the baseline, and this kind of lowercase g is still widely in use in scripts today. Actually, it's kind of inaccurate to say that the insular G faded out of existence once the Carolingian G was introduced into English. What really happened is that insular G evolved. Insular G became yog, a new letter with its own unique shape and with its own unique phonetic values distinct from g, the hard G sound. This was a useful innovation because the pronunciation of the letter G in Old English was unstable. One of the reasons for this instability was due to palatalization. Palatalization is a sound change that occurs when a sound's point of articulation is palatalized. In other words, when a sound's point of articulation in the mouth shifts to the hard palate, aka the hard part of the roof of your mouth. Due to palatalization, the Old English G came to be pronounced as y when appearing before front vowels, which are the vowels articulated in the front of the mouth, such as e, a, and a. For example, the Old English words for yonder and year, yonder and year, respectively, were spelled g-e-o-n-r-e and g-e-a-r. Another inconsistency with the pronunciation of the Old English G is that when it appeared between two back vowels, vowels articulated at the back of the mouth, such as a, o, and u, it was pronounced as a guttural sound no longer found in modern English, something like ch. For example, the Old English word for drag was pronounced drachen. There were probably a variety of guttural sounds in Old English with slightly different pronunciations, but we're not going to go into that level of detail here. The letter G was also pronounced with the familiar G sound when appearing before or after other consonants or before or after back vowels, as in words such as god and lang, god and long, respectively. Having a letter do multiple jobs is not unheard of, we have plenty of letters like that in modern English, and this is especially true when those multiple jobs are contextually predictable. However, the pronunciation of the Old English G became less contextually predictable after Old Norse words began entering into the language following Viking invasions beginning in the 9th century. 
Though Old English and Old Norse are both closely related Germanic languages, the palatalization of G did not happen in Old Norse, which meant that Old Norse words containing a G before front vowels still preserved the hard G sound. For example, when Old English borrowed the Old Norse word ger, meaning gear, they pronounced it with a hard G and spelled it G-E-A-R. However, recall that the Old English word year, meaning year, was also spelled G-E-A-R, and there was no way to tell these words apart in spelling. Simultaneously, in Norman French, the pronunciation of G had become equally unstable. G was used for the traditional G sound, but when G appeared before the letters E, I, and Y, all of which represent front vowels, the pronunciation of G was softened to a J sound. As French loanwords containing soft G entered English, that created yet another possible pronunciation of the English G, and, of course, we still have this soft G rule in modern English. The way that English writers solved this orthographical nightmare was by adopting insular G for all of the native English sounds associated with G that were not the hard G sound. By the 12th century, insular G had fully evolved into the distinct letter Yog. So what did this letter Yog that we've been teasing out for the past few minutes actually look like? Unlike our previously studied lost letters, this one's pretty easy to describe. It looks like a three. It's worth noting that while all of the other lost letters that we've discussed thus far began to decline during Middle English, yog actually rose to prominence during Middle English. Now let's take a look at yog in the wild, its pronunciation and usage in Middle English spelling. To do this, I'm going to read a passage from David Gould's translation of the Middle English poem Pearl, in which the various pronunciations of yog are explained quite nicely. I'll also add some of my own commentary. Quote, Yog was pronounced in several different ways, according to its position in the word. Initially, yog was pronounced like y, as in modern English yet. It had the same sound after the vowels e, i, or y, for example, in the Middle English words ie and hie, which, unlike their modern English counterparts, were pronounced with two syllables. So those are the Middle English words for i and hi, respectively, and they're spelled y-yog-e, ie, and h-i-yog-e, hie. The quote continues. Within words or at the ends of words, yog or gh sometimes represented the sound of w, as in folwed, followed, or inau, enough. So these Middle English words for followed and enough were spelled f-o-l yog e-d and i-n-n-o yog e. We know from its use in Middle English rhymed verse that this predecessor to the modern English word enough was not pronounced with an F sound at the end. We'll talk more about how GH plays into the picture in just a bit. But back to the quote, before T and after E, I, or Y, Yog or GH was pronounced like CH in German ich, for example in the Middle English richt, meaning right. Before T and after A and O, 
Yog was pronounced like the CH in Scottish Loch or German Bach, for example, in Middle English Socht, meaning sought. It had the same value word finally in the word Thach, spelled thorn a yog, which meant though. However, at the ends of words, it more often represented the unvoiced sound of s, as in modern English sil, though it may also at times have represented the voiced sound of z, as in modern English zeal. End quote. All right, so that's a lot to take in, but at a high level, the important takeaway is that depending on its position within a word, yog could be pronounced differently. It might represent the y sound, the ch sound, and other guttural variants, the sh sound, the w sound, or even the s and z sounds. This excerpt mentioned the gh digraph, so how does gh come into play here? Norman scribes in England disliked using unique English letters like thorn and win and yog. As a solution to writing the sounds these letters represented using the limitations of the French alphabet, these scribes created digraphs, or combinations of two letters, to represent single sounds. They used th instead of thorn and ev. They used uu instead of win. And they used gh instead of yog. Many words containing gh today are words that in Middle English were spelled with yog and featured one of the aforementioned, now lost, pronunciations. Yog ultimately fell out of usage due to the same reasons the other lost letters we've looked at fell out of usage. French influence on English orthography and printing presses imported from continental Europe. Just as continental alphabets lacked the letters ev, thorn, and win, they also lacked yog and therefore, press blocks of the letter yog were never mass-produced. English printers used the French-innovated GH digraph as a way of representing words spelled with yog. Because English spelling was beginning to become standardized during this time period, we still have the GH digraph with us today. However, the pronunciation of English has shifted drastically since the origins of standardized spelling in the 15th century, and therefore, many of our standard spellings preserve older pronunciations that today read unphonetically. The pronunciation of words containing the GH digraph are among the most notoriously unpredictable in the English language. When coming after the letter U, GH is silent, as in though, taught, and naughty. It's also silent when following the letter I, as in night, fright, and right. Sometimes it's pronounced as F, as in cough, rough, and laugh. In some British place names, the pronunciation of GH is entirely unpredictable, as in Slough, Keithley, and Loughborough. You may have never realized this consciously, but some words that end in Y, such as fly and dry, have related forms containing GH, like flight and drought. This is no coincidence. In Middle English, both forms would have been spelled with the letter yog, but the yog would have been pronounced differently in these different word forms due to its unique relationship to the other sounds within each word. While guttural sounds have long since disappeared from English, they are still preserved in its sister language, Scots. For example, the Scots words for light and night, licht and nicht, were once spelled with the letter yog, though today they're spelled with the ch digraph. 
Yog has disappeared from Scots just as it has disappeared from English, though Yog does live on in a roundabout sort of way in a handful of Scots words. Recall that Yog looks like a backwards number three. In some renderings of the letter, this shape kind of looks like a cursive lowercase z, the kind with a tail. Since early printing presses couldn't print the letter Yog, some Scottish printers began substituting the letter Z for Yog, due to this resemblance. Words in which Z was substituted for Yog were never meant to be pronounced with a Z sound. But over time, as Yog faded into obscurity, Z as Yog spellings persisted, causing some words that originally contained a Y sound to now be pronounced with a Z sound. For English speakers, the best-known word affected by this unintended shift is the name Mackenzie. Mackenzie was originally pronounced Mackenyi, and that Y sound was originally represented by a yog. Alright, that's it for today's episode. It was a lot of information, but hopefully I've distilled it manageably. If you have any questions or concerns, shoot me an email at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Again, I do encourage you to check out the new site and sign up for the newsletter. If you've been thinking about supporting the show on Patreon and you've just been putting it off for whatever reason, now is as good a time as ever. And don't forget about the Latin course with Rebecca Deitch this summer. I've included a link to the RSVP in the show notes, and if you want to learn more about the timing, the price, etc., go to wordsforgranted.com and click on the Latin Course tab. All right, thanks everyone. See you next time here at Words for Granted. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.